At the time of this recording, a school shooting had just taken place in Nashville, Tennessee, killing six students and staff. But since we recorded this, I can almost guarantee that there will have been another one before you're hearing this. There's a whole conversation around school safety that's getting lost in the shuffle. On today's show, redefining school safety and changing our mindset from fear and knee-jerk reactions to prevention and love. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. This is Our Children Can't Wait, a podcast about the systems and structures that keep our kids from flourishing. Our Children Can't Wait is also a book from Teachers College Press, available for purchase on Amazon. And if you're new to the Our Children Can't Wait podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. As a parent, It makes me really upset to have to hear my boys talk about the school drills they've done at their elementary school to prepare for an active shooter scenario. These are the last things I want my kids to have to think about in a place that is supposed to be safe and fun. But even I'm guilty of jumping into the generational divide and the idea of school safety. When we think of safety in schools, my brain immediately takes me to a dark place of fear in school shootings. The safety approaches of the past that have dominated our responses have sparked the interests of scholars like Dr. Heather Reynolds and Dr. Ron Astor to pursue a new path forward. Professor Reynolds is a faculty member at Empire State University in New York and national expert on issues of school safety. My name is Heather Reynolds, and I'm a professor of teacher education at the State University of New York, Empire State University. And I had the great pleasure of being one of Ron Astor's first graduate students. So that's how we're connected, and we've kept working since a long time ago. (laughs) Heather teamed up with Dr. Ron Astor of UCLA an international expert on school safety, and a social worker by training. Welcome, Ron. Hi, I'm Ron Aviaster. I'm a professor of social work, and I'm in the School of Education at UCLA. I've been doing school safety stuff since before it was even called school safety. So uh, that's that shows how old and how long I've been doing it. <laughs> <laughs> and Heather is not only one of my first students long ago, but she's one of my best friends and colleagues these whole years. I've learned so much from her. In fact, the whole reason why we're doing this chapter is because of her experiences in the field and her kind of pulling me over at ARA one day and saying, what's with boards? What's with school districts? What's with all that? We had coffee and we just kept on doing it. So it's really her leadership that has pushed us to be thinking. And it's completely changed our theoretical framework that we published in 2019 to include school boards and districts. I mean, it seems obvious, but it was not up until very recently. That's a great segue 
And we're going to talk about the American Educational Research Association, ARA, Ron mentioned briefly. So Heather, starting with you, how did your upbringing shape your interests in the world of school and community safety? I always was interested in working with kids. I worked at camps. I was a lifeguard. I got interested when I was in college. I worked as a lifeguard as a residential treatment center for kids who had sort of serious emotional issues and were all residents of the school. So it's a a residential treatment center. I became very interested in that, working with that population of students. I was a teacher my first year out of college at a residential treatment center for boys who were nine to 13 in my classroom. And it was just chaos, chaos, but also really drew me to the idea of that importance of student-teacher relationships. These were kids that rejected, 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 And just when the year was finishing up, connections started to be made between the kids and um, myself as I was a teaching assistant in the room. Mm. And I saw the the power of that as a, a way to reach kids, help kids. And um, of course, safety was a big part of, I mean, I, I had, large boys in my classroom every day, many of whom would lose their ability to control their emotions and behavior. So I was really interested in that. And, and it sort of carried over to, to graduate school. I started at Michigan looking at motivation and it just, not that it's not an interesting area, but I, I don't know how I bumped into Ron, but (laughs) (laughs) the idea of looking at it across student populations and a broader perspective. Now, when I went to high school, there were no school shoot. I mean, we didn't have drills. There were no, there weren't school shootings. And, and I remember being at AERA in Montreal Mm. presenting with Ron on the day of Columbine. Wow. And so it was just really bizarre and and also it was good to be in a place where we could talk about it. But I think that sort of really fully committed me to pursuing, again, sort of this combined work with, with teachers, like welcoming classrooms, and then um, also just looking at school safety, school safety policies. Thank you, Heather. We're going to come back to, to Columbine more as, as we dig into the, the chapter 11 of the book. And, and I'm going to go to Ron. So Ron, we've talked a little bit about this, but you're a renowned scholar nationally and internationally on even more, more than school safety issues. But for, for today, we'll, we'll identify you as, as a school safety expert. Where did this start for you? Well, really, I, I would say my culture in my childhood, uh, you know, I'm Jewish. We weren't religious in our house, but we were very culturally aware. My mother spoke Hebrew. She was actually a principal of a preschool, a director for 56 years. And my wife has been a principal for 34 years. I have teaching credentials. So, But the Jewish piece, literally every holiday that we have is about somebody trying to destroy us uh, going back 3,500 years and how we made out of it. So violence has always been part of prayer, been part of the holidays. And it really got me thinking early on 
why? Why are people wanting to destroy others? I was very interested in schools, even though I had pretty much dropped out of high school, had a really not positive school experience hmm. growing up because of school violence, because of bullying and because of uh, fights. Uh, these were during, people are forgetting, during the 70s and 80s where the numbers of violence in terms of uh, people being killed and particularly in schools and around schools weren't collecting it were, uh, you know, more than 100% higher in many of our cities than they are right now. Interesting. Murders, killings, you know, so these were pretty violent times. Police were around our campus all the time. There's a huge amount of gang activity, and this was on my mind. So when I finally got my MSW and I had an early childhood credential and I was teaching, I was looking at the literature and all I saw was aggression or juvenile delinquency. Those were the words that people were using pretty much with faces of African-American boys on almost every cover that mm. was in the book. And when I went to Berkeley to do my doctorate after I had my master's degree, I said, well, I want to do school safety. There was a literature in Europe on it, already 30 years old mm. at the time. And my advisor said, absolutely not. That's the flavor of the month. Do it on uh, moral development and retribution. So I actually was not allowed to do my dissertation mm. on that. And I kind of mm. kept it on the side. But to me, that gap in the literature, plus my experiences culturally and also personally in terms of the school setting and school context, were completely left out of the research and practice literature. So, for example, the first journal ever on school violence with the word school violence happened the year after Columbine. Up until that point, it was called aggression and violence and youth violence. They had other words for it. But the context itself, like you would do family violence or community mm. violence, didn't exist for schools up until 2000, really. So this is really just the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, we were interested in it beforehand, and I was obviously uh, working in Richmond schools up in Northern California and Oakland schools, and there were school shootings, mm -hmm. by the way. Not covered by the media, not covered by the radio, not covered. I mean, I, I had duck drills with my students on the playground. There tended to be gangs warring with each other back and forth and different syndicates that were uh, not caring that the school was there. There was even a teacher who was shot getting their kids to the school bus and tried to get workman's compensation. And the state denied them at the time because they said it wasn't the teacher's job to save kids' lives. He just did it on mm -hmm. his own. That's a very well-known case. So that all happened around the same time. Most of it didn't make any of the newspaper, radio, news at all. So I think our consciousness as a country and as a world really started at that watershed moment at Columbine. Many of us knew that this was happening because we grew up with it. We saw it, we were working, and we knew the context had to be looked at because it was affecting everything. Just add even ARA. Uh, it took a while to push ARA. I finally went to, I won't say the names of the people, but the very high up people and said, the day of Columbine, we were there. And I said, if, if a big hole opened up in the ground here and swallowed up ARA, mm -hmm. it wouldn't matter because you don't have anything to say about the school shootings or school safety. And that really pushed the leadership there, I think, to think about it. Uh, and since then, they've done a great job. But what I'm trying to give an example is even people who were in education who knew this was an issue didn't see it as an educational issue. Mm. They saw it as a psychological issue. They saw it as a this or not even related to schools. It was just family and community. What Ron just said, that's important. In episode after episode, we're hearing a common refrain. 
Just now, we heard that school shootings, safety, wasn't really considered an educational issue in our larger consciousness. It was put aside as a psychological issue. It's pointing towards a need to deconstruct our notion of education, like the factory model of schools as a place of production and control of kids. So what is education then? It actually is everything we're talking about. So we're seeing how education is a housing issue, an environmental issue, a mental health issue, and yes, a safety issue. And just acknowledging that is progress. But it doesn't mean our policies have caught up with the broader idea of the function of schools in our society. Our Children Can't Wait is the book I wrote, and I made this podcast to have a conversation with you. Maybe you're an administrator, a teacher, a parent. Gosh, maybe you're a student. Maybe you make policy at the state level, or maybe you just want to learn more about this topic so we can keep the conversation going and hear what you think about the ideas brought up by this podcast. Please email me at joe at com. I'd love to hear from you. Our Children Can't Wait is a production sponsored by the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA, and the book is published by Teachers College Press. Funding for today's show comes from the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. And if you haven't clicked follow on the podcast, please do that now. Rate and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Education and policy is a landscape dominated by acronyms. For this conversation, which we'll call a tale of two acronyms, one, SROs, represents the past that has actually made school less safe, and the other, SEL, a positive way to support kids in their needs. SROs, or school resource officers, are sworn law enforcement officers with arrest powers who work either part or full-time in schools. SROs have been around actually since the 1950s. They became more present in the 90s due to concerns about rising rates of juvenile crime, the federal government's funding of community-oriented policing services, COPS, and the Columbine shooting in Littleton, Colorado. The Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning, also known as CASEL, at the University of Chicago, defines social and emotional learning as a process where young people and adults acquire and apply the knowledge, skills, and attitudes to develop healthy identities, understand emotions, achieve goals, and show empathy. This process and mindset is the positive counter to the idea of police and schools as a way to make schools safer. So let's pivot back over to, to Heather. In the chapter, we talk about the history of policing and school and community safety in our country. And Ron talked about really this phenomenon over the last 20 plus years, where we've kind of finally opened our eyes. Could you boil down some of the themes for us around our history in this space for listeners to better understand? Pre-Columbine, what was happening? The Cops and Schools Initiative has been around for a long time in terms of funding 
police to be in schools. It sort of, I think, started the SRO program, the school resource officer program. But I mean, historically, Ron and I have talked about how having police in schools was to some extent limited to high poverty, inner city environments. That was seen as there were metal detectors, there were police, Mm -hmm. that was just an everyday thing. But once we started seeing these school shootings happen in suburban white areas, which continues. It's like every time something happens, it sort of shifts where we want to have police. Mm. And so after that, the SRO program grew. And I know, you know, it's not necessarily a political by political party. I think both parties have bought in and funded police in schools and continue to. And an interesting piece just historically was with Sandy Hook, there was a push to have more police in elementary schools across the country. Cause that was like, wait, wait, it can happen in an elementary school with little kids. And Uvalde put that over the yep. top. So now you have a lot of districts. I'm guessing that when we get kind of, to be able to look at things post COVID, you know, everything's delayed, research is delayed a year or two. We will see an incredible increase in police in schools, especially at the elementary level, because they already were at the secondary level. So it's sort of changed that trajectory of, well, this is a city thing. Mm. That whole you know, school to prison pipeline, having police in schools and disproportionately impacting students of color mm-hmm. has now shifted to the suburbs and our students of color in suburban and, and rural schools as well. Hmm. So Ron, why this dominant mindset and even response around school resource officers and police in schools? Well, I think it's a good question, and I think Heather touched on it, but uh, there's been two kind of genres going up all the way from, if you want to look at the 80s, pre-school you know, school safety kind of, is it the person? Is it the family? Is it the community? So scholars have been asking for this for a while, and I think psychology dominated the discussion in terms of interpersonal, and you see that with social emotional learning skills, other mental health issues, whatever, you see this whole genre of evidence-based practices that psychology in general has put out and education has adopted to the setting. You have the other genre of police and law enforcement that's been around for that long as well and earlier, but again, it's been conceived as an issue of particularly around African-American Latinx Hmm. students, but for poverty areas. And that was going back all the way, you know, to the 70s and 80s. So these two kind of pillars and genres have been with us for a really, really long time. And like I said, when I was in school in Los Angeles, I was born and raised here and I went to LAUSD Hmm. schools. We had police cars circling our schools all throughout my, uh, you know, we forget. We forget that there, there were shootings. I had kids with guns in my schools uh, at the time. 
But because it wasn't, we didn't have a consciousness of it at the time. It was just accepted and normalized. It was covered in the news. We're actually in way, 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 way more peaceful times. If you look right now in terms of victimization, people being killed, people being shot, except for the mass school shootings. But even there, if you look at the numbers, they're dramatically lower here. So I think we've been reorganizing in our heads over the last 20 something years, this balance between how much police do we need in the community, uh, in the school, how much of this is related to emotional skills or interpersonal skills or mental health issues. These themes have been around for a long, long time and are being crystallized right now in this battle that's happening after every shooting. So it's the shootings that are driving these mass shootings, by the way. So we have shootings in the inner city. We have shootings in a lot of areas still that don't get covered up until this day. You only get them if you kill a lot of people in a suburban setting and you break a record. Then you get international coverage. So Hmm. we do have somewhat of a distorted view of these issues, but it's propelling both the Uh, I wouldn't say just police officers. I would say I'm putting them all into this category of law enforcement, metal detectors, see-through backpacks, dogs in the schools, video cameras that are all around. They're kind of surveillance that relate to prison and security. But in that case, it's the students themselves that are the potential perpetrators that we actually see it. So we see that although although it started now with suburban schools, One of the reasons why the civil rights organizations have particularly pushed back strongly and rightfully so on the police piece and on the kind of militarization and prisonization of school, I know that's not a word, but throw it in there anyways, is because it it really hits uh, BIPOC kids in a much stronger way than the suburban kids, although it is impacting the suburban kids as well. And that's because their schools turn into prisons much faster than the suburban schools where there is a little bit of pushback there. So to, to connect the dots for the listeners too, we've been talking about the racialized nature of policy and dominant policy responses throughout this podcast. Tyrone Howard talked about addressing school discipline disparities as a immediate in-school response. Angela James is going to talk about just how many young people we incarcerate every day in our youth, the youth organizing conversation. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, how the stereotypes and how people think of young people of color. So when you say BIPOC, Ron, just to make sure listeners are, are understanding the uh, acronyms and jargon sometimes we're, we we say quickly. Black, indigenous, people of color. Okay. Okay. But, you know, so there's two issues with what you just said. It, it is hitting the whole country. When we look at national surveys, it's hitting uh, white kids, uh, Asian kids, Jewish kids, Muslim kids kids of color. But if we look at who's getting disproportionately, again, prisonized, Mm -hmm. it's the schools that have the most amount of structural racism in our society. I'm not just saying because it's a high proportion of black or Latinx kids. These are also, let's remember, the schools that are most underfunded systematically Mm. because of that. So we keep on forgetting the money piece Mm. and the resource pieces that are ongoing. And so in other words, there aren't a lot of resources for extra social workers or counselors or even training teachers or lowering the ratios. So that's been a struggle all the way going back to COSAL days. And I think that's structural. That's, That's the way our society has set it up. And still people from other countries come here and they're still shocked thinking, 
what? You have kids from different neighborhoods in California and they're actually their per pupil spending per year is dramatically different, uh, double, triple the amount. So when we're talking about these various different groups around issues of school safety, we need to remember it's not just interpersonal skills or certain types of bias. We have structural ways that the places are actually under-resourced on purpose, mm-hmm. understaffed, and that create kind of contexts that predispose themselves to this more militarized response. So Dr. Astor has laid the foundation for the intentionality and by design of what what we've seen or what we see in the patterns we see playing out in schools and communities. So you just gave a great preview for the school funding chapter and and podcast with Oscar and Danielle that will be coming up later. Let's pivot. So Dr. Reynolds, I read your chapter and Dr. Astor's chapter again this morning. I mean, it, it's so rich with with context and information, but as, as we think about solutions, I think what, what struck me, you, you made it very clear, you and Ron made it very clear that we've been historically very reactive as a country around how we, how we react to young people and families, even how we don't invest or support them. And I'm curious, how do we make this, this pivot and what does the pivot look like to more upstream strategies that are really guided by evidence and research on the best ways to support young people. So where, where do we go from, from here, Heather? So that's a difficult question. I mean, I can say where I think we should go. The problem is that the fear, when you are fighting against fear, data, sort of rationalizing things, having a conversation, they don't come into play. It is a very emotional, I am fearful for my children every day they go to school that they're going to die. And when it comes to conversations about that at the local level, that's a hard thing to do. I've learned uh, from my experience as a Board of Education member, the importance of listening and understanding that. I never worried when my son went to school that anything was going to happen to him because I'm embedded in this world where I can look at data and statistics and I can say, well, he's much more likely to get run over by a car walking to school about a thousand times over. Mm. But I guess it's the piece that's hard especially right now in a very divided country, is being able to have these conversations in a way that doesn't make me out to be an anti-gun, anti-child person. Hmm. That I'm actually speaking from a perspective that is backed by data, but I can understand your emotion bringing security in. I mean, we saw like Parkland, how suddenly there are school guardians. Who are school guardians? They're people that come in and have minimal training and carry guns in Florida schools. We don't even know what's going on with them, but that was a reactive solution to help people feel like they could send their kids to school. Mm. I think there are other interest groups that get involved, but I truly think parents are are terrified, many are, of this happening to their kid. And that's what's challenging at the local level is 
it becomes a space where you can't have conversations necessarily. I think that is my experience in a suburban school district. The interesting mm. piece about the conversations in urban school districts is we don't want the police. We don't want them in here anymore. But again, Ron and I have talked about okay, but how are you going to do this in sort of a data-driven way so that you're successful with it? So again, it's it's emotion and it's understandable and everything is so heightened right now. It's hard mm-hmm. to have these conversations. But ultimately, if you want to prevent violence in schools and the kind of violence people deal with every day, which is student fights, bullying, uh, sexual harassment, the CDC data that just came out showed that girls are being sexually assaulted at higher rates now than they were the last time that data was collected. So we have a lot to deal with. We don't have great funding streams. We have the, the COPS grant. I mean, you can you can hire SROs. There just mm. isn't a historical program and sort of means to ask for funding for SEL programs because they're just not as clear. They're not as clearly defined. They're not as evident. You drive by my son's old elementary school up the street. Now I see a police car outside, oftentimes with lights flashing. Hmm. This is a suburban town where there's no, virtually no community violence. And so that is something people see. They don't see what's going on in the school, which actually prevents what they're most worried about. It sounds like unintentionally, sometimes parents and community members are making the potential for violence and punitive practices or behaviors more common in school. So, Ron, we've talked about this, and you and Heather talk about it in your chapter, but what can we learn from other countries around more upstream approaches and prevention models? I want to take like five steps back even because the question that you have can be unpacked in different kinds of ways. But I I think we're in a state of confusion in our country, not just politically, not just on this, but actually on what the purpose of schools are supposed to be. Mm. So what we see is a lot of competing interests, psychologists, social workers, educators, police officers, other I could go through the line that are lobbying for their own solutions. And then we see schools doing everything. They're doing SEL, they're doing climate, but they're also hiring police officers and arming teachers. We're seeing that in the data. And these are very liberal places. They don't know because uh, why not? Uh, It's a program. It's a thing. Uh, It doesn't fit into what the kind of rhythm and purpose of the school is supposed to be. So when we go around the world and we see the schools that are the most peaceful, they have a very clear philosophy and mission that integrates safety from a cultural perspective that relates to the family community. It's a narrative that everybody understands. So just having a gazillion programs, and right now our latest study looking around the United States, it looks like a lot of schools have like 14, 15 programs, 14, 15 different ways. That's just wow. discombobulated, right? So And, they, and they're counterindicative. Again, teachers carrying guns, they also have high levels of SEL programs. For us, that doesn't make sense but it's partially our fault as researchers because we've marketed these as prevention programs. We didn't say you can't do everything or you can't do both things. And we didn't really push the whole cultural piece that, that the school has to be aligned 
kind of throw that in in the back sentence of every chapter or everything that we write or talk about. But it needs to be up front that every local school creates its purpose. And so when you have a great principal, a wonderful climate, they're actually creating things ground up, not just all top down. Right. Uh, we tend to see the safety integrated with the academics and with what the teachers do. The second piece is far more structural, and that is universities ourselves. We've really screwed up. We don't include this stuff in teacher training. Mm. We don't include it to a large degree in principal education. We don't include it in superintendent or school board trainings at all. So we, we created a giant kind of cottage industry of experts and consultants. By the way, I don't charge for consulting, so just I'm just putting that out there. But who live off of this? They sell products. Uh, they sell consultants, which is fine. But it's not in our university. They have to get that after they get in the field, after there's a tragedy. So I think I think if you're looking at solutions, we got to take a couple of steps back and say, what is the purpose of the school? What are the guidelines that we might have with these prevention integrated programs so that they make sense for your community? And the largest piece that's missing when I look at other countries in particular is really the voice of the students and the voice of the teachers mm. and parents, I might add, too. Those interventions and what you choose to work on should not be coming from the top down. The boards and the superintendents really need to go through a very elaborate ground up process to hear what people are concerned most about, what they want to work on first, and what they're willing to put their time and energy into. And we find when you do that, that means it's not a one size fits all. For every school, you might have one community with 15 schools and they're all doing different things. Right. But then you get really good results. If you try and just kind of put a top down on it the way we've been doing this with the curriculum, it, the moment the grant goes away, the moment the money goes away, everything goes away because their teachers aren't trained in it. Other people, there's turnover. So it's not built into the infrastructure. That's a big difference between us and many other countries. And I think we need to start moving towards that central question of how is school safety a central part of what the school does for mathematics learning, mm. for reading, for history? They're all connected. Literature. I'll say one more thing. I'm super concerned right now in terms of school safety around the massive book bannings that are happening. Thousands and thousands and thousands of books around issues of race, LGBTQ, uh, anything related to you know anti-Semitism or, or or those kinds of things, girls' issues, and this is literature classes. To me, that's a safety issue. This mm. is an example. If you go back and you think, well, that literature teacher, what they cover, Shakespeare is covering suicide. Shakespeare is covering homicide. Mm. Shakespeare is covering all, all these things are school safety issues and missed opportunities if it's not integrated to what the school is actually doing. The schools that do it best across the world do that kind of integration. Mm. We've kind of compartmentalized that into psychological programs. Mm. Got it. When I hear you both talk about safety as an idea, it is much bigger than money programs, people, structures. It's it's in the really the water supply, the air that the students breathe, the books they read. You both have helped me kind of reconceptualize safety, honestly. Heather, did you want to add to that? Because you're shaking your head. Yes. Yeah, and I've, I've been doing some work with some local districts around me around how you assess programming that's related to sort of social and emotional supports because that's what everyone is concerned about with sort of what's coming out 
in terms of teacher stress, school leader stress, and mental health, and students. And one of the most important questions that I ask is, how is that program embedded into your school mission and strategic goals? Mm -hmm. And nine Mm -hmm. out of 10 times, it's not. And that is never going to go anywhere. And I think that's true. It doesn't have to be an SEL. It can be any program. We, like Ron's saying, it, it's compartmentalized. And there are wonderful things going on in the same school building that people don't know. Hmm. Because it's not carried over time. Someone's doing wonderful restorative circles in second grade. And those kids thrive and it's a great practice they go to third grade they don't do it anymore so it's continuity and it's what lens you're looking at all of this through and how are things tied and again when the board of ed votes on programming and keeping programming if it's not tied to your mission and your strategic plan it's not getting funded so you have to shift a lot of districts don't have sel related goals in their district mission and strategic plan. So that's another stumbling block for funding. Let's follow up on that real quick before we go to to Ron for for our last question. So Heather, what's the one thing you want listeners to take away from this conversation today? What's the one thing? You've already started to outline that a little bit. (laughs) That's a tough one. I think the one takeaway is we have to start using data to see what's working, what's not working, what's helping kids, what's not helping kids on a local level. We have to figure out systems. Oftentimes a district doesn't have a person who has a research position for the district. If they do, it's often someone who's pulling data for state reports and, you know, compliance stuff. It's not, hey, is second step, which is this super prescriptive program that we have K through eight, is that working? Like that's Mm. not part of what districts do. Now we ask districts to do a lot. And I think Ron and I have talked a lot and tried to sort of promote the idea of faculty uh, at universities who are doing this work, doing more work with schools in their community or other communities. Because, you know, these large studies that show, hey, PBIS does X, Y, and Z Mm -hmm. can point some schools in one direction of what they might want to do, but the school really needs to know what their needs are. And, and that's the problem is we, we, we rush, we have funding. um, We do something, but we don't stick with it. I mean, that's, and it's not the school's fault. It's not, it's just the structure and the infrastructure isn't there. Thank you, Dr. Reynolds, Dr. Astor. What, what's the one big takeaway? I know that this is hard because you've been giving us a lot to think about here, Ron. It has to do with a lot that we haven't talked about yet, and, and that has to do with the school shootings. If I have to pick one thing that Heather alluded to here that's driving this conversation and the sense of that nothing's working are the continual, very frequent mass school shootings that are being reported almost daily 
uh, in the media, not just in schools, but in other settings as well, too. We have a big article coming out in World Journal of Pediatrics and looking at California's 20 years of data. I could send it to you, Joe, if you want, or the audience yeah. members, it'll be out. But it, it actually goes data-wise opposite to what we're talking about here. So we've had not just little reductions in California. We've had over the last 20 years with all these interventions that we've talked about, massive reduction, 50%, 70%, 65%, even when you talk about weapon use mm -hmm. and weapon threatening and all these other issues. So we're going on a little bit of catch-22. On one hand, you know, you have the shooting saying these are the worst of times. Everybody's feeling unsafe. Number one issue for parents, number one issue for kids in terms of dying at school. On the other hand, we see the data sharply decreasing mm. right at the time when we started doing the interventions in California, we can't do a direct connection. So we do have to struggle with the truth when we look at the data, and that it may be that what we've been doing strategy-wise has been working. And by the way, African-American kids, Latinx kids, Asian kids in California had the biggest reductions, much stronger than white kids in our study over time. So, but this is why I, I, I wanna bring in the school shootings, yep. because uh, they're different than what we do day to day in school. And somehow we've linked the two, uh, that if we do the prevention, then we won't have. I would like to put forth that the audience and other people need to think, when you think about what schools are, the school shooting, school shootings are actually a form of terrorism. Mm -hmm. We don't talk about it, of suicide. So almost all the shooters are going in there suicidal with long history telling people they have weapons, they're obsessed with the shooters, and they go in there to actually be remembered by the media. Mm. Uh, the media covers it, and, uh, and and we see a frequency in terms of it going up. We did see the same thing when suicides are covered the way our school shootings are. They will go up in a community or a school. We see the same thing with terrorist acts. So maybe we need to separate out at this point when we're asking the question, what should our schools be? When we look at our data on kind of day-to-day, -day, even very serious school safety stuff, it, it's going down in a very sharp dramatic way. So maybe what we were doing, some of the things in terms of what the academicians were doing were okay. And we need to separate out the idea that we're actually being terrorized nationally. And my suggestion would be looking at the international data around the shootings is if we could frame this as a suicide mm. issue, and if we could frame it as a terrorism issue to the country where everybody's, no matter what we do SEL wise, as long as these shootings continue, people are going to feel it's the number one issue. The media does have guidelines on this, and they've been shown in research are very, very effective at reducing terrorist acts and suicide acts. If we could get the media and schools and other people to start following some of these guidelines in terms of reporting on the perpetrators, how wide it goes out, and just focusing on the victims and what could be done, we know we'll get a reduction in frequency and, and death. So I want to throw that out because that's not talked about a whole lot. And we are in a catch-22 I would just want to add one last thing, and that is our norms. It's not just the numbers going down. Our norms of what we're willing to accept for our kids in this country, and particularly uh, uh, BIPOC kids, mm -hmm. have changed. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. We are now not willing to accept one kid being killed because they're going to school. That wasn't the case 23 years mm -hmm. ago. So just the fact that the numbers are going down and it's getting less than it was to is not sufficient enough. Right now, our norms, our cutoff has changed. So our strategy and our thinking needs to change around that too. And I think uh, that's the big takeaway I have, where we, 
we are now not at the end of a, a trail. We're now at the beginning of a new trail defining what is it that we want to do? What is it the goals of our country? What are we willing to tolerate? And how are we going to integrate all this so it's coherent? And what, what strikes me, I mean, a lot strikes me in what you just shared, Ron, but that we've potentially seen as a whole a decrease in school violence, which is very positive. However, the incoherence of the systems and programs is at a at, at a new high. That's correct. But I've also heard you say we need to reframe the conversation really around terrorism in school settings. Right. There's a mismatch between the objective data at each school. By the way, 95% of schools in California have these kinds of reductions yep. in the last 20 years. It's not just in a few schools or suburban schools or urban schools. And, and an increase in our emotional fear in our emotional where what Heather was talking about. So it's kind of, they're going in opposite directions. Most people would say, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. It does make sense if you look at it in terms of norm changing. Yep. When, when these changes have happened, it's not just more programs. Our willingness to accept, by the way, that's true for child abuse, it's true for wife battering, the numbers are down along, and that's a good thing because we as a society don't want that going on anymore. So that emotional piece has to be reframed, I think, in terms of the mission of the school and how it responds to acts of terrorism, how it frames it to kids. When somebody does a school shooting, they're trying to terrorize every kid in the country, every parent in the country, not just the kids in those schools. And it's effective. And it's causing an increase in police, in the militarization of schools. So if we don't address that specifically unconnected mm -hmm. with these other programs that we have, it will continue to go and we won't really have that much control over it. Dr. Ron Astor referenced a major study he just finished showing that despite mass shootings and other high profile incidents nationwide, Day-to-day -day violence at California schools is actually lower than it was around the turn of the century. That's right. Schools as a whole are actually safer than they were. But does that mean our job is done? Absolutely not. Does that mean that for students of color that are too often the target of punitive approaches like out-of-school suspensions and racial profiling, that we should be satisfied? Absolutely not. But we have a lot of choices to make and research can help light the way for both political parties. Gun control at the federal and state level is clearly a starting point for our country. Removing SROs or school resource officers from schools is necessary. Making schools healthy, positive spaces through a focus on social and emotional learning will help us continue to see less violence and dangerous situations unfold in education. There are plenty of examples of schools and policies that are presenting strong, non-punitive alternatives. But the big question is, will we have the courage to do what's right, even if it's hard? My answer, we will, you will. This is Our Children Can't Wait. Thanks for listening. I'm Joe Bishop. Our Children Can't Wait is a podcast by the Center for the Transformation of Schools 
in the School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Support is provided by the Stewart Foundation and the National Education Association. Elizabeth Windham is the producer. Julia Windham is the associate producer. Geneva Sum is the creative director and senior producer is Jay Woodward. Our Children Can't Wait is the companion to the book of the same name, Our Children Can't Wait. Available now on Teachers College Press and Amazon. Our Children Can't Wait is produced by Windhaven Productions and Blue Jay Atlantic. <laughs>